Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Thursday, August 29th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Gillibrand drops out. The September debate lineup is confirmed. Bennett's open letter to the DNC. And Steyer calls for a wealth tax. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. On Wednesday afternoon, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand announced she would drop her run for the presidency. In a three-minute announcement video, she recapped her campaign for president and wrote on Twitter, quote, Today I am ending my campaign for president. I am so proud of this team and all we've accomplished, but I think it's important to know how you can best serve. To our supporters, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now let's go beat Donald Trump and win back the Senate, end quote. Gillibrand has her New York Senate seat through 2024, so that last note is not about her own election, but her efforts to help the party. So as with all the candidates who leave the race, let's look back at some highlights from the Gillibrand campaign. Her first big policy was about campaign finance reform. She called it the Clean Elections Plan, but the terminology that jumped off the page for me was the phrase democracy dollars. The proposal was basically to give citizens vouchers which they could use to donate to candidates if both the candidate and the voter opted into that system instead of a cash system. It was a smart way to flip the script on campaign fundraising, and she proposed to pay for it with a tax on corporate CEOs who had excessively high paychecks. The vouchers themselves were what were called democracy dollars, and other candidates have also endorsed similar proposals. Next up, Gillibrand was among the first in this field to explicitly say that as president, she would only appoint judges who support the Roe v. Wade decision. That's not an unusual position in this field, but she wrote a whole article about it way back in May, and it fits in with a series of her other proposals related to women's rights and reproductive rights. Later that same month, she announced her Family Bill of Rights, which included a set of progressive policies around pregnancy, birth, adoption, home nursery care, maternity and paternity leave, and affordable childcare. In June, Gillibrand called for legalizing marijuana nationwide as part of a criminal justice reform platform, The plan also called for expunging all non-violent marijuana-related convictions. She has a bunch of other plans, too, and there's a link in the show notes to her extensive policy platform, which was conveniently published on Medium. Probably the biggest breakout moment for Gillibrand came in early July, when she spoke about white privilege at a campaign event in Youngstown, Ohio. A clip of that went viral on Twitter, and I'm going to play it again here, but first I do need to read the question she was responding to, which is partly cut off in the audio clip. So a voter asked, quote, I hear you saying there's a lot of divisive language coming from Republicans, coming from Trump, and that we are looking for ways to blame each other. But the Democratic Party loves to throw around terms like white privilege. This is an area that, across all demographics, has been depressed because of the loss of its industry and an opioid crisis. What do you have to say to people in this area about so-called white privilege? End quote. And this is the audio with the end of that question included. Listen in. This is an area that across all demographics has been depressed because of the loss of its industry and an opioid crisis. What do you have to say to people in this area about so-called white privilege? I understand families in this community are suffering deeply. I fully hear from you and folks that I've talked to just in the few minutes I've been here that it is devastating when you've lost your job, you lost your ability to provide for your kids, that when you've put 20, 30 years into a company that all of a sudden doesn't care about you and won't call you back and gives you a day to move. That is not acceptable and not okay. So no one in that circumstance feels privileged on any level. 
But that's not what that conversation is about. What is it about? I'm going to explain. Okay. What that conversation is about is when a community has been left behind for generations because of the color of their skin. When you've been denied job after job after job because you're black or because you're brown. So institutional racism is real. It doesn't take away your pain or your suffering. It's just a different issue. Your suffering is just as important as a black or brown person suffering, but to fix the problems that are happening in a black community, you need far more transformational efforts that are targeted for real racism that exists every day. So if your son is 15 years old and smokes pot, he smokes pot just as much as the black boy in his neighborhood and the Latino boy in his neighborhood, but that black and brown boy is four times more likely to be arrested. And when he's arrested, that um, criminal justice system might require him to pay bail, 500 bucks. That kid does not have 500 bucks. He might not be able to make bail. If he's an adult with a child at home and he's a single parent, if he's thrown in jail, no one is with his child. Doesn't matter what he says, I have to go home, I have a child at home, he's only 12, what am I gonna do? It doesn't matter. Imagine as a parent how you would feel so helpless. That's institutional racism. Your son will likely not have to deal with that because he is white. So when someone says white privilege, that's all they're talking about, is that his whiteness will mean that a police officer might give him a second chance. It might mean that he doesn't get incarcerated because he has just smoked a joint with his girlfriend. It might mean that he won't have to post, post bail. It means he might be able to show up to work the next day and not lose his job and not be in the cycle of poverty that never ends. That's all it is. After the mass shootings in Dayton and El Paso, Gillibrand appeared at a gun safety forum in Iowa sponsored by Moms Demand Action and Every Town for Gun Safety. At that forum, she called for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to call the Senate back from recess to vote on two gun safety bills that had already passed the House. Here's that clip. If every one of you spends the next four weeks speaking out, using social media to be heard, tweeting at Mitch McConnell saying, Mitch, call the vote. Mitch, call the vote. He could call us back into Congress today. We could pass universal background checks today. We could ban assault weapons. We could ban large magazines. We could have a federal anti-trafficking law today. So it's your voices that matter. So keep speaking up. Do not be silent. Just keep demanding it. I promise you, your voices matter. It's the only time it's ever worked in our entire history. It's when regular people like you demand it. McConnell did not call the vote. And finally, on Wednesday last week, I reported that Gillibrand publicly said she would accept a vice president spot, or frankly, any spot in public service. That is consistent with her many discussions about her faith and what she sees as a calling to service. Here's that clip, and the Washington Post's Robert Costa speaks first. Listen in. If you were not the nominee, would you be open to serving on the ticket? Of course. I will do public service in all its forms. I am here because... um, My faith has really inspired me to serve, uh, to make public service my life's mission. And if I'm called to serve in any capacity, I will do it. As she exits the race for president, Gillibrand is one of just a few candidates who had any shot of picking up a spot in the October debate. And that was a long shot. She got one qualifying poll in this cycle out of the necessary four and had not yet crossed the donor threshold. 
And that donor thing might be particularly notable. It's likely that Gillibrand was running low on money and made a strategic decision to stop spending. Remember, she funded her presidential race in part with money transferred from an existing Senate fund from the last Senate election cycle. It would be smart to try to retain some of that for 2024. So Gillibrand is out of the presidential race and she is back to work in the Senate. She has said that she will endorse another candidate in this race, but as of deadline today, I have not yet heard who that will be. I know a lot of you are busy people, and me too. When I look for ways to take care of myself, I need two key things. First, a schedule, and second, the activity needs to be as short as possible with the highest impact I can get. Know what I mean? Like, I can't spend three hours a day in a spa or something, but I can spend five minutes, maybe even twice a day. And it would sure help if I can do it anywhere I happen to be on my phone. And that's where an app called Simple Habit has entered my life. It's an app for meditation, relaxation, and even life coaching. There are a ton of sessions in the app that walk you through specific stuff, like dealing with stress or grief or loneliness, or even pumping yourself up before a big important meeting or a test or a date. Simple Habit is easy. When you first start out, it walks you through an excellent five-day set of sessions. Each day is just five minutes long, and it's totally doable. I want you to go to simplehabit.com ride. The first 50 listeners who sign up for a paid plan there will get 30% off. Now you gotta use that link. It's the first link in the show notes. Again, that is simplehabit.com slash ride to get the discount and let them know you came from this show. So one last time, the first 50 listeners who go to simplehabit.com slash ride are going to get 30% off. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Next up. Okay, just to be clear, the DNC confirmed today what I said yesterday about the September debate. There will be 10 candidates and they will debate together on one night. Cool. So why am I telling you this? Well, it gives me an excuse to quote John Delaney, who went on MSNBC and compared the DNC to Thanos, who is a Marvel comic book villain whose evil goal is to eliminate half of all living beings. He attempts to achieve this goal using a magical glove that can do that if he snaps his fingers. Delaney said, referring to the DNC, quote, they're kind of like Thanos, snapping their finger and trying to get rid of half the field, right? That's really kind of what they did. End quote. Okay, that's it. That's all. I just wanted you to know that that actually happened on live television. All right, now that the debate lineup is confirmed, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett posted a thread on Twitter asking a series of pointed questions for Tom Perez, who is the chair of the DNC. While at first these may seem purely like sour grapes, Bennett didn't qualify for the debates, he does raise several questions that really do merit an answer. I'm going to read a few of those here. He listed 11 points in all, and you can read all of those in the show notes if you like. Quote, Why hasn't the DNC informed campaigns of the entry requirements and qualifying deadlines for the upcoming debates 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 so each campaign can plan its strategy accordingly and have confidence that the DNC is not moving the bar on behalf of the frontrunners' campaigns? End quote. 
That's an interesting point there, and he's referring to the fact that there will be a total of a dozen primary debates from the DNC. Okay, so part of the issue when transitioning the donor and polling thresholds from the first two debates into the second two debates was that candidates didn't know until relatively late what targets they were supposed to aim for. So given that there will be a total of 12 of these debates, it would be logical to at least lay out a framework for some of what comes next. It's probably not smart to set those rules in stone for, say, the 12th debate when you're just about to host the third one in a couple weeks, but some guiding metrics would be both normal and really helpful for the candidates. Okay, here's another question from Bennett. Quote, Who at the DNC decided which polls would be sanctioned? What was the specific criteria for allowing certain polls and not others, and why has that not been publicly disclosed? For example, why are polls from reputable polling organizations such as Suffolk University, Marist College, and Siena College excluded from the DNC's approved list? End quote. Okay, this is part of a huge theme I haven't gotten around to covering on this show. A few candidates, including Gabbard and Steyer, and of course Bennett here, have pointed out that the DNC's list of approved pollsters is sort of hard to understand. If the DNC approved more pollsters, more candidates would be in the next debate. So this is a valid question in the sense that the criteria itself ought to somehow be stated. Personally, I care less what the criteria is than the fact that we know it exists and has some objective basis. And right now, it's all top secret. So it's natural to be asking questions about this big secret magical thing that has a huge effect on the campaigns. All right, the next question is a doozy. Quote, was anyone who is now on the staff of a presidential campaign consulted about the debate qualification rules? End quote. Yeah, I have no idea if he has any specific campaigns in mind there, but I am curious what the answer would be. Okay, and the last question goes back to the infamous climate debate thing. Quote, why are candidates prohibited from participating in non-DNC forums and debates that would allow the voters the opportunity to hear in-depth discussion given the DNC's refusal to hold issue-specific debates? End quote. And end, very good question. So we've talked about that last one quite a bit, and I will keep you posted if Perez indeed responds to any of these questions. On Twitter yesterday, activist and former hedge fund manager Tom Steyer wrote a brief thread proposing a wealth tax. Now, this is a topic that's come up a lot in this cycle, most prominently from Senator Elizabeth Warren, who proposed a 2% annual tax on assets over $50 million. Plus, in Warren's plan, she would bump that up to 3% for anything above $1 billion in assets. A wealth tax would act kind of like a local property tax, except it would be applied at the federal level on all kinds of assets, not just houses and stuff. Okay, so Steyer, who himself has a net worth well above $1 billion, jumped into this discussion, writing, quote, As a billionaire, I'm entitled under current GOP law to pay less taxes on my income than most Americans. For years, they've claimed that if wealthy families pay less in taxes, magically everyone will benefit. As a former investor, I can tell you none of that actually works. Tax cuts for the richest Americans only benefit the richest Americans. When we don't pay up, it means roads aren't getting fixed, schools aren't being properly funded, and too many people can't find affordable housing. I believe that it's time for a new wealth tax in this country. 1% annually on the wealthiest 0.1% of Americans. 
Our country gets stronger when we all do our part, not when the powerful write laws that benefit themselves at the cost of everyone else. End quote. And he expanded on the plan in a YouTube video. Here's a clip from that minus the intro and the bit where he asks you to donate to his campaign. Listen in. Here's what that means. If you're worth more than $32 million, you'll pay a penny on every dollar you have above that level. No deductions, no exemptions, no loopholes. Over the next decade, those pennies, a tax on just 175,000 of the richest families, could raise $1 trillion for our schools, healthcare, retirement security, and more. I've closed tax loopholes before. We can do this. In an op-ed for USA Today, Steyer lays out a few details, saying that his version of this tax would start on assets above $20 million. That is a substantial difference from Warren's $50 million starting point, and hers starts at 2% while his is at 1%, but hey, it's all math anyway. The reason this is notable is that you now have multiple candidates in the field pushing for this kind of tax. There are clear questions about whether it is constitutional, given that the 16th Amendment gives the federal government the right to levy income taxes, but doesn't mention this kind of asset tax. This kind of wealth tax has already been tried in various parts of the world, and often it has been rolled back due to an inability to enforce it. Wealthy people found ways to dodge the tax. Americans like Steyer and Warren, and to be fair, some notable American economists, point out that the U.S. has vastly more resources to go after that specific and relatively small set of people who might try to evade this tax. Assuming, that is, it passes constitutional muster. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Well, this morning, I awoke with a clatter at around 3 a.m. A giant thunderstorm crashed through southeast Portland early this morning, which is truly unusual for us, and the thunder was wild. This was much louder than thunder I used to hear every day growing up in southwest Florida during the summer storms. I mean, this was like jump out of the bed, check for imminent warfare kind of thunder. Fortunately, everything seems fine. There were dozens of lightning strikes within just a few miles, and so my wife and our cat, Mr. Spock, just kind of sat around dazed as the storm raged, and we kept checking Twitter to see what we could find out, and then it passed. So as I record this now, it is unbelievably muggy and hot, 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 and kind of wet. So, you know, back to all that mess. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Tomorrow.